Well, in our sermon series through the book of Genesis, we were introduced to Abram last week and learned that he was an unlikely hero whom God selected through no merit of his own and that God chose to use. As Zach shared, he was just a guy in a list of guys, an aging man in an increasingly young man's world, a childless man with an ironic name, and an idol-worshipping pagan. And that is how we were introduced to Abram last week. And in the first three verses of chapter 12, we heard of God's call for him to leave his land and his people and respond in faith and sacrifice. And we heard the seven great promises that God made to him. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that, purpose clause, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We heard reference to that in Daniel, of that great blessing for all. That call that we heard last week marks a series of conversations and appearances that God would have with Abram that are recorded in his word. And this morning, we see that Abraham continues this new and growing relationship on his journey of faith. As one commentator has noted, in nearly every episode in the book of Genesis that follows, the promise of a numerous seed, blessing to all peoples on earth, or the gift of the land is placed in jeopardy by the actions of the characters in the narrative. The promise looks as if it will fail. In the face of such a threat, however, the narratives show that God always remains faithful to his word and that he himself enters the arena and safeguards the promise. So this morning, as we look at Genesis chapter 12, three simple points in terms of structure. The first is our hero. As we look at the flawed hero saga, and notice it's mentioned part one, there are more to come interspersed through our continuing look in the book of Genesis. We see that Abram is a hero. We've seen that attested in Hebrews 11. And so we'll look at our hero Abram's faith and his obedience when he trusted God. But secondly, we're going to look at his flaws. Because Abram's fear and his failure caused him to trust in himself and not in the God who had given these great promises. And then finally, we consider what is our response. Now, underneath those three points, though, is the overarching aspect. Not to lose this, that it is not a story about a man or us as followers, but it's all under the umbrella of God's sovereignty, grace, and mercy that he chooses to work out his plan through, his, through people in history and those that he has called. So let's look at the first section here of Abram as a hero, verses 4 through 9. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, 
and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land, and when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. And from there, Abram moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So we see in this account, we begin to see unfold, why would we begin to even consider Abram a hero? This unlikely fellow whom God has called and as we, it was suggested last week that possibly that initial call, whether it was Terah's disobedience or Abraham taking a pause to honor his dad, or he didn't completely continue, but they had stopped and being called out from Ur of Chaldeans, where we learned later that that's where the initial call took place. And they settled for a while in Haran. And we saw last week the problem with that word settled. That instead of going forth and multiplying as the people had been commanded, first they settled in Babel. And they wanted to make a name for themselves. But God said, I will make my name known. And even as we get to this promise and this change from Babel to the call of Abram, Abram doesn't make his name great. God tells Abram that he would make Abram's great and as a vehicle for God's blessing to others. And so we do see those. We begin to, in verse 4, simply Abram went. So regardless of whether there was a, an intermediate step or a pause, there's some suggestion in, that maybe with verse 1 there's a renewal of an in, initial call. We're not clear on that, but we see that in verse 4 there is obedience because Abram went as the Lord had told him. It shows an act of obedience and response to the call that God had given him. And so Abram goes. He takes everything. There's no, he's not leaving anything behind. It's a complete break from what he has known. He has left his father's house from his country, his kindred. That, and then the father's house, the proximity, it gets, that call gets narrowed from the country to the kindred to your father's house. And Abram has responded in obedience by going forth. And we see as he enters the land, to not miss, verse 6, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. This isn't simply a land of, of unfulfilled possibility that's just there for the taking. There's an acknowledgement there are other people there. Warren Wiersbe says that in spite of what the folk songs say, entering Canaan is not a picture of dying and going to heaven. It is a picture of the believer claiming his or her inheritance by faith. And so we see that not only did, obey, did Abram obey and go where God had directed him, but as he got there, he sees that there, there might be some resistance to this. And yet Abram was resolved. One of the commentators says that this comment about the Canaanites is stated in preparation for the promise about to be given to Abram. For no one can fully realize the greatness of the thing promised to Abram 
until he remembers that the land promised to the posterity of Abram was already occupied by the Canaanites. But Abram's faith is not daunted by this seeming difficulty. So Abram has followed as God has led, leaves his, home, his country, his kindred, his father's house, and he enters this land. God is directing him, and there are people already established there. And we see, and as much as we saw the introduction of the three themes that are going to carry forward as that concluded last week, that the land was not yet promised. There was an aspect that God had, in terms of the nation, the kingdom, and the blessing, and that's kind of what, if you're going to be a kingdom, you kind of need to be a, there needs to be a place. But that is a new promise that God makes here in verse 7. And we also see that as Abraham responds in faith and obedience, God appears. It's as if it's a, a welcome gift or an affirmation. The appearance of Yahweh to Abram is like a gracious welcome and reception and a reward for his fidelity in obeying the Lord's direction. That same author continues, though, but the generous character of the promise should be noted very particularly Abram had, been mere, had merely been bidden to go to a land that God would show him. There was in that word no intimation that Abram's seed would inherit the land. So God is seen actually to give more than he promised. And isn't that like our great God? Not only does he fulfill his promises, he delivers, he over-delivers. He doesn't over-promise and under-deliver. He is beginning to fulfill that, and we also see a fittingness that as he promised this, this nation, this nation needs a locale to inhabit. And God begins to not only fulfill that, but to, um, in, in an appropriate way, makes the additional promise that, Abram, this is the land. This is the land for your people. And so we see that Abram has followed God's directions. He's been obedient He's not been afraid at the possible opposition. He's willing to strive. And we see now in verse 7 that Abram is grateful. So as God blesses him with this appearance, this affirmation, this new promise that's even more than what he's already told Abram he's going to give him, Abram responds in gratitude. Abram's grateful. And so he built there an altar to the Lord. He gets to Canaan. There are inhabitants there. Oh, God, is this the right place? It seems to be already taken. There's no vacancy here. God affirms it. God appears. He says, no, and I promise this is the land that I will give you. And in response to that appearance, to your offspring, I will give this land, God says. And so Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abram responds in gratitude and acknowledges him. And you think of the testimonies. He builds that altar. And in the context that he's in, he builds an altar, and there's no idols. And so Abram's testimony begins to be different. He doesn't worship these idols. He has this relationship with the true God who has appeared to him, who has, direct, who has directed him, has affirmed that, has given him additional promise now and blessing, and Abram, in gratitude, builds an altar 
to the Lord. He continues, and he continues moving about in the hill country on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent. And there again, in another area of this land, he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So not only is there gratitude in marking this with this altar, but now with the second altar in this new phrase, this additional phrase, and called upon the name of the Lord, we see here public worship. Worship of the Lord. If your Bibles, the, most of you probably have the small caps. The covenant name of God, Yahweh, the true God of the universe. And Abram, who had come from an idol-worshiping people, a pagan place, responds to this call of God in obedience, follows him to this new land. God appears to him, affirms, gives additional promises. Abraham's, Abram's grateful and Abram worships, suggestion even of public worship. Martin Luther says that Abram preached. Matthew Henry says that he preached concerning the name of the Lord. That is, he instructed his family and neighbors in the knowledge of the true God and his holy religion. The souls or the people that he had gotten in Haran being discipled must be further taught. Now, it's particularly interesting as we look at this phrase and called on the name of the Lord. We've seen it before. We've seen it back in Genesis chapter 4. And as, as, we've, as we've looked at the promise that's coming, Genesis 3.15, that promised seed. And yet, it wasn't Cain, and it couldn't be Abel, and there was a little bit of despair and then Seth comes and it's in that time that then and Seth then has a son so there's there's hope of the line and it says in Genesis 4 26 and they called upon the name of the Lord now what's interesting there is the the comparison of Seth's son Enosh which means frailty that they called upon the name of the Lord despite acknowledging their own humility and dependence so much different than Cain and Lamech who had established themselves and set themselves up, much like Babel. We will make a name for ourselves. Humbly, Seth, the line of Enosh, frailty, humble, dependent, calling upon the name of the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. In a commentary on Genesis 4.26 that speaks to us here in this phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, Keel and Delich say, we have here an account of the commencement of that worship of God which consists in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving, or in the acknowledgement and celebration of the mercy and help of Jehovah. While the family of the Cainites, by the erection of a city and the invention and development of worldly arts and business, were laying the foundation for the kingdom of this world, and compare that to all that Abram had, was asked to leave in the developed world of Ur of Chaldeans, the family of the Sethites began by unified invocation of the name of the God of grace to found and build the kingdom of God. The promised seed had come. And so as we see as this intervening time from Seth and the promised seed and the true worship of Yahweh and the chaos that descends and the flood and then Noah and a restart, and then again, Babel, we see that as God 
calls Abram and has begun to do a work with a people, we see that again, the worship of the true God is restored. And Abram calls upon the name of the Lord. He is worshipful. And I don't fully understand all of the significance, but others would suggest that also when you see Abram's travels here in the life of, of a nomadic or semi-nomadic, the fact that in verse 9 that he journeyed on. One writer says that the life of faith must never stand still. For if your feet are going, your faith is growing. And note the verbs described to, used to describe Abram's life. He departed, he went forth, he passed through, he moved, and he journeyed. God kept Abram moving so that he would meet new challenges and be forced to trust God for new grace to help in time of need. Comfortable Christianity is opposite the life of faith. For pilgrims and strangers must face new circumstances if they are to gain new insights about themselves and their Lord. And so we see a couple places identified here, and we don't have any indication of the length of time or, or how much pause was taken, what other, and the more than likely other aspects were explored in this new land that God had identified. And we don't have time to look at the significance of those that are mentioned in depth this morning, but in the three locations that are mentioned here, Shechem, Bethel, and Ai, and then the Negev, are the same three locations visited by Jacob when he returns to Canaan from Haran in Genesis 34 and 35. They're also the sites occupied in the account of the conquest of the land under Joshua. And so as we think about also the instructional nature of Moses recording this history and preparing his people as he receives the law and recounts this, an older, one of the older commentators wrote that the Torah does not recount its narrative simply to instruct about ancient history. Rather, its aim is that of teaching religion and heritage. These parallels, these parallels between Abram's experience, Jacob's experience, the people in the time of conquest under Joshua, show clearly the method of demonstrating that the deeds of the fathers in former times prefigure those of their descendants in the present. Its intention is to show that what happened to Abram also happened to Jacob, and then also to their descendants. This is to show that the conquest of the land had already been accomplished in a symbolic way in the times of the fathers, demonstrated by means of their building their altars and purchasing property. Thus it shows that in the deeds of the fathers, there is a source of trust that the Lord has cared for them from the very start and that he will remain trustworthy in the days of the descendants of the fathers later on. And so only if Moses' initial hearers would have read that Abram was unfazed by and there were Canaanites in the land. There had been a pattern that should not have disturbed them either. And so we see here some traits of, some heroic traits of Abram, some things to model in our obedience, in our courage, in our gratitude, and in our worship. But unfortunately, as Zach reminded us a few weeks ago in his sermon on Noah, and I'm going to use some quotes from some of the things from his notes, a good beginning is no guarantee of a good end. And so we see a transition here from this story of Abram's initial obedience to a period of failure. 
Now, Noah was also a flawed hero, maybe the prototype of this flawed hero. So our saga, though, begins with the patriarchs. That's why today is part one. But like Noah, following a victory or a successful period of Abram's response and obedience, there comes hardship, and in this case, testing of a severe famine, which reminds us that oftentimes, when experiencing God's blessing and even victories, that doesn't mean the, the journey's over. That doesn't mean that there may not be a test immediately following, that God's blessing doesn't exempt us from future challenge and hardship. And so we now consider Abram's flaws, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away. They escorted him with his wife and all that he had. So the first change we, begin to, we see here, I would suggest that Abram was faithless. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now, there are some questions, and it's not as clear. And the question could be, was this sinful? Some of the commentators don't even consider that. They consider that in the, the climate and the provisions and the, the normal uh, travels of the, the nomadic people, that when there was famine, you went to Egypt. There's others that say that that second part of verse 10, the second statement about the famine, that it was severe, is almost a justification I kind of wonder if maybe there was famine and Abram stuck it out for a while. But then it continued and I think his faith weakened. The other reason to suggest that maybe it wasn't a failure is that unlike in Genesis 26 when God directly commands Jacob, do not go down to Egypt, we don't see that here. However, the concept of going down to, G to Egypt is often equated with not following God. And as we see God's promise, just having identified this is the land, I will bless you. Some have suggested that the famine in Canaan was to teach Abram that even in the promised land, food and clothing come from the Lord and his blessings. So I think that this was a reliance on self. That, boy, I don't know if I'm going to make it. 
I'm not sure if I can trust this God who has led me here and going down to Egypt. Wrong place, wrong time. Noah, David, Jonah. And we see in the middle of verse 10 that they, he went to sojourn there. Sojourn is just kind of a quick visit. There were no plans to settle. Remember the challenge of settling that we saw in Babel and with Terah and Haran. And yet, as this narrative unfolds and we see Abram's scheme, it really didn't have a long-term resolution. It wasn't a quick, hey, we'll do this, and that we see Abram remaining. We see his livestock increasing from the gifts from Pharaoh. He's getting pretty entrenched. And so I think all of this is a lesson to show that Abram had lost some of that faith. His faith was still being developed. Again, a challenge from Zach's notes from, from Noah. A loose defense against sin, add in even a lax obedience, tends to have compounding effects. It frequently produces further opportunities for our own sin. And that's definitely the case, right or wrong, Abram going into Egypt, what begins to follow are a series of bad decisions and bad consequences. First of all, unlike the faith to go set out to where God would show him on his own, he becomes fearful. Then they will kill me, verse 12. It's the fear of man. Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body. We sang about that in, great, in uh, a mighty fortress. But Abram becomes afraid. Abram doesn't think back to all the promises that God has just given him, that he has proven himself faithful already and extending those promises that if he's going to be a great nation, he has to live long enough to have a son, which does not exist. And so Abram's faith begins to falter, and he is fearful. And even if that was the possible prospect, responding sinfully to the sin of others is still a sin. And in response to that fear, then we see deceit. Abram becomes deceptive. Say you are my sister. Now this was a half-truth, and we have that unfolded more in Genesis 20, but unfortunately Abram pulls the same scheme. And we see that this was actually a pre-hatched plan. We read later in chapter 20 that he and Sarah, had, at least Abram, had devised this when they first left. So say you are my sister, an intention to deceive, to not be truthful, to not be a conduit of blessing by being the obedient one, and extremely selfish. Verse 13, and do this so that it may go well with me because of you. Leopold says, fully aware of the fact that such a course may involve the sacrifice of Sarai's honor in order that he himself might fare well, Abram nevertheless asked Sarai to make the sacrifice. Abram never sank lower, as far as we know, than when he made this request. And so he does it to kind of save his own skin, but then he begins to benefit from it. So he's exploitative. And for her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. 
verse 16. So we see this series of flaws, this series of failures in this former hero of ours. But notice then that not only these actions on behalf of Abram, but the result. That not only is Abram not a source of blessing, he becomes the source of judgment. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called him and said, what is this that you, you have done to me? And so instead of being a blessing, and in the middle of verse 2, in the, the fourth of those seven blessings, so that you will be a blessing. There's an aspect that that is a promise, you will be a blessing. But there's also an implication of that, of an imperative. That that is now your role. That is your calling to be a blessing. And instead of that now, Abram is the conduit for these plagues. It's a lot like Noah. It's a lot like Jonah. Instead of going with the message of redemption, he becomes the reason for the calamity. And then finally, and we see this a little bit in the parallel from verse, the contrast between verse 8 and verses 18 and 19. But Abram is ashamed. He is speechless. Contrary to verse 8, where we see the reports of Abram's worship while in Canaan. We'll see it again, beginning of 13, when he returns. There's no mention of worship in Egypt. And his only recorded speech is to plot the deception. He gives no response when challenged by Pharaoh, presumably because he had none. In contrast, that silence and shame to verse 8, calling upon the name of the Lord in worship and gratitude. But we have a transition here because the story doesn't stop. Abram stuck in his flaws because God mercifully intervenes to save Abram and Sarai. Pharaoh returns Sarai, honor intact, lets them go, in fact, escorts them out. They went up from Egypt. They're now back in the land that God had promised them. And they return to the place where they had made an altar at the first, in chapter 13, verse 4, and there Abram again called upon the name of the Lord. Unfortunately, even though God intervenes and saves, we see moral choices we make frequently have lasting consequences. Abram set a pattern of deceit that will be seen in both Isaac and Jacob. He undermined his own credibility in front of his entire family and servants. And the seeds of future trouble were sown. The great wealth and increased livestock that came from Pharaoh creates problems for, for between Abram and Lot. Wes will talk about next week. Lot becomes enamored with the worldly standards which shaped his values and decisions. And Hagar, the Egyptian servant, servant given to Abram, brings division and sorrow. So we see that. So as we see our hero and his flaws, how do we respond to that? We trust and obey. We trust fully in God, not in ourselves. We obey fully, not halfway. As a way of warning and challenge, 
in the, the Noah conclusion, Zach said, the pursuit of godliness is a lifelong endeavor. And he mentioned that at the end of Noah's life, that he'll have to carry it through. But I see that also as an encouragement and a hope at the beginning of Abraham's journey. Because Abram failed this time, and he's going to fail a few more times, we see. But God is merciful and gracious, and Abram's faith is building. And we'll see it at its full maturity in Genesis 22, as God provides him with an ultimate test of obedience. And we read about the, the final report on Abram, on Abraham, in Hebrews chapter 11. So our pursuit of godliness is a lifelong endeavor. And as we fail, as we sin, it doesn't need to mean the end of the road because we have a gracious and merciful God. Last Sunday night, Joel reminded us from Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind, both the victories as well as the failures, and pressing on. In 1 Timothy 4.15, I love the passage where it's, it's Paul has challenged Timothy. He says, let everyone see, not your perfection, let everyone see your progress and that we might be growing in our faith and obedience. Be reminded that our sin impacts others. And then as we see this series of tests that Abram encounters, Canaanites in the land, Abram was resolved, famine in the land, other asks that he has, other tests that he will have, other tests that we will face, we need to build a character that is ready when it counts. But under all of this, our hero, his flaws, our response, is a sovereign and gracious God who will fulfill his promises even when those who have received the promises fail miserably. He is a faithful God. Amen? Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this account in the life of Abram, the one you called. We thank you for the honesty of your word. We don't rely on Abram as our supreme example. We see him as a flawed hero. We've recounted a very embarrassing, tragic, awful account of his actions in Egypt. And yet we're thankful you didn't stop using him. You restored him to worship and fellowship. You allowed him to continue in growth. You gave him further tests where he would then eventually prove himself faithful. May we be reminded of that. May we follow you. May we be obedient. May we be grateful. And may we truly worship you because you are worthy of our praise and loyalty. In Jesus' name, amen.